with Lloyd Racine at the Montana Stock Growers Association annual meeting on December 16, 2011. Lloyd told me about his memories of his father, who raised Lloyd to be his partner, and explained some of the unique challenges that small, native producers face in agriculture through his witty quips and stories. Okay. Lloyd Boss Racine from Browning, Montana. How did you get involved in farming and ranching? Born into it. <laughs> Are you on the same place then that your family's been on? No. Nope. I joined the Marine Corps. When I joined the Marine Corps, my dad sold out. He thought he'd be able to keep me home by telling me, well, if you join the service, I'll sell. Because Vietnam was going, going on at that time. And he was afraid that I'd end up having to go to war. So when you got back, how did you get your own land? Uh, well, my mom gave me land. And then you just started selling your own cows? Yeah. Started to try, and then I did a lot of things. <laughs> Tried to teach school for 12 years. And what brought you back to ranching? Oh, it's the only thing I liked. I knew I couldn't teach school anymore because uh, one, one school I instructed at, I was called every female part with an effort behind it. And well, I, I can't do this. What are your most favorite parts about ranching? Just being, just being around it. The, the smell. <laughs> Something that'll stay with you for the rest of your life. You can just sort everything out. And what are the most challenging parts of it? Trying to figure out where you're going to get funding. <laughs> Especially for small producers, it's harder because uh, the funding just is not there because you don't have you know, X amount of this or X amount of that. And the banker will say, well, this is kind of a risk. <laughs> well, it's a risk. I don't care what you take. Look at Donald Trump, you're looking at his comb over, you're taking a risk if his hair is going to go the other way. <laughs> Was there ever a time where you thought you just couldn't do it anymore? When I was young, <coughs> you know, I watched my dad do it, him and my mom, and I watched him. You know, one time we went, my, my dad spotted the station wagon. The year was 1964, a blue Ford station wagon. Country Squire walks in the Ford dealership, talks to the young salesman, tells him, well, uh, what are you guys asking for that station wagon down there? Salesman takes a look at my dad. He ain't all dressed up, has his work clothes on, smells like a barn. <laughs> And uh, he tells him, well, Chief, I don't think you can afford it. You can only afford what's in the back row. And those cars in the back row are like two or $300. And brand new station wagon at that year was well, about 3900 to 4000 somewhere around there. And he kept telling no, I want that car. He said, you can't afford it. So the sales manager come up. 
And he knew my dad. I was like, well, Jinx, how's it going? He says, well, he says, I want to buy that car, but this kid here won't sell it to me. <laughs> he says, he keeps telling me the only thing I can afford is in the back room. Sales manager looked at him. He says, well, let's do the paperwork. I'll sell it to you. And he told my dad how much it was. My dad turned around and told my mom to pay him. So my mom reached in her purse and pulled out the money and paid him. Because he never believed the credit. He always paid everything with cash. And I didn't know my mom carrying $6,000 around in her purse. <laughs> what do you mean? You guys can't buy me a five-cent ice cream and you can buy a car? But, you know, that's the ups and downs of it. So. What are some of the changes you've seen over your lifetime? Oh, God. Technology. Growing up, we did everything from the back of a horse. Now, you see everybody doing things from the back of a four-wheeler. They don't know what cowboying's like anymore. And we still do. If we can't do it from a horse, we don't. Plus, I don't know how to ride a four-wheeler. I won't even know how to. Ride. I won't even know how to start one. <laughs> Same thing with snowmobiles. I don't. I don't know how to start one. I don't know how to drive one. I know what they look like. What are some of the changes you can even? Guess would happen in the future to agriculture. Oh God, the way the way we're going, you can see the you can see the benefits now from you know, thirty years ago. You know, if my dad was still alive, he wouldn't even believe the stuff that was going on right now with with the technology and how things are, and with with the medicine for the livestock. And it still, well, it still baffles me. Thinking, huh? <laughs> I think I better get a book and reread this. People tell me things, thinking they do that. <laughs> I'm just, I was raised old school, and I just stay that way. If there was something you could change about agriculture, anything that you could change about it, what would it be? I'd have more of a market for native producers and where they have more of a voice. And whereas the native producers' counterpart has more assistance than the, the Indian producer does. And people think that, you know, the native producer gets all of this stuff for free. No. We have to damn near hawk our souls to the devil. Well, to the government, <laughs> whichever. <laughs> well, you know, the counterpart, you know, the non-native producer, the small producers are basically in the same boat too. And, but we have to find a market, a better market, Whereas the large producers, they already have the market, they already have the money and everything. And we just have to hunt for a better market and look at it that way. Looking towards your operations future, who do you think is going to take over? My grandson. Since I know my son, he has no interest in unless it has something. If it has something to do with forestry or environmental or weeds, yeah. 
Now, how well, old's your grandson? Yeah, my grandson's nine years old, but he, you know, he can tell you anything you want to know about quarter horses. <laughs> Is there anything that you know about agriculture that you feel like people need to know about agriculture that they don't? Um, how to work with the governments. Like, well, for, for me, because being a native, I take more of a look at treaties, which are supposed to be the law of the land. So I've been fighting with the USDA for 10 years on trying to get a certificate of export. And then finally, I just told them, hell with it. I'll just hire my own veterinarians that will give me a certificate. And then I'll use the Jay Treaty. The Jay Treaty is the oldest treaty for the United States, which was in, implemented in 1793, ratified in 1797. And within that treaty, it's intercommerce trade amongst nations. And that treaty is designed for the United States, Great Britain, or the Crown, I should say, and native tribes. There's the only three that are on that treaty. Canada doesn't recognize it, but the United States still recognizes the Jay Treaty. So in order to do free trade, the natives have to take a look at the treaties. When you think back over your years ranching and farming, is there a memory that stands out? Oh, yes. It's family. It was where my dad never raised me to be his son. He raised me to be his partner. And granted, you know, there's 15 of us in our family, and I'm the only one that was ever interested agriculture. I got a, my older brother's a lawyer. My other brother's a psychologist. <laughs> and they look at me and they say, God, <laughs> you still got shit on your heels. <laughs> but I don't have the dollar running my life. I'm not stressed about I got to make this much. I have to make over 100000 just so I could uh, survive. What? <laughs> I'm lucky if I make twenty. But I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. My dad always told me, you have to have fun. As soon as it's not fun, then it's a job. So, and he never did lie to me. Is there things that set you apart from people who are ranching around you? I learned how to steward, use range stewardship from my dad. And what does that range stewardship mean to you? When you become the steward of the land, you're taking care of it. And it's taking care of you, so it's giving you the resources so that your livestock can uh, uh, provide a meal for you at the end of the year. Well, we rotate about every two weeks. And so you're just constantly, you're never eating nothing down to where it looks like the Great Sahara Desert. Well, this year we had good moisture. But before that, we've been in a drought for almost 20 years. And what were some of your ways to deal with those drought conditions? You just have to be careful with it. Watch. When it sounds like you're walking on crackers, it's time to move them. This project was made possible by a grant from the Matthew Hansen Endowment Fund. 
by an award through the Environmental Studies Program at the University of Montana. Thanks to Lauren Chase, Multimedia Outreach Specialist of the Montana Stock Growers Association, and thanks to Lloyd for seeking me out. The song used in this program is Petit Telebet by David Chappell, also known as Lustong, licensed under Creative Commons. See links and hear more of my collection of interviews at montanaheritageproject.com. Thank you.